As an investor who's planning on making a lot of money in the stock market, you need to know how to pick stocks. That's one thing that I want to talk about. I'm also going to talk about the best stock that you need to have in your portfolio. I'm also going to talk about my portfolio. And then I'm going to give you five tips on how to get rich by investing. Let's jump right in. Let's talk about how I pick my stocks. Now, I look at specific metrics when I'm deciding to purchase a company or even purchase stocks and shares in a company. And when I look at my portfolio, I have about 23 dividend paying stocks in my portfolio. Now, the metrics that I look at work for both dividend paying stocks and growth stocks. But one thing that I always pay attention to is even though I'm buying individual companies, I make sure that I'm well diversified into different sectors. Because if you buy an index fund or an ETF, you have the benefit of being automatically diversified. But when you buy individual stocks, that's something that you have to remember. With the stocks in my dividend portfolio, I've received 94 dividend payments year to date. That's about eight and a half payments per month. And also, I have more shares in specific dividend-paying companies because these companies spit out more dividends that I can use to purchase other dividend-paying companies, which is pretty much a snowball effect of me receiving dividends and then reinvesting those dividends into other dividend-paying companies. The act of analyzing a company's performance and metrics in order to decide if you want to add it to your investment portfolio is called fundamental analysis. Fundamental analysis can be done high level or more detailed. When I talk about detailed, I'm talking about you actually opening up annual reports, a couple of them, and then analyzing the numbers and try to figure out how the company is performing. I like to keep it high level by looking at specific metrics. Those high level metrics, I call that the company's report card. Let's say you have two kids. You have a son and a daughter. Both of them bring their report card to you. You look at your son's report card, he has all A's and all B's. And then you look at your daughter's report card, she has a couple of A's, a couple of D's, and a couple of F's. Now that's quite concerning because if you look at your son's report card for math, history, biology, he has all A's. But then when you look at your daughter's report card, she has an F for biology. She has a D for math. So now you have to do some additional digging to try to figure out why she has these bad grades. That's also how I look at analyzing companies. I use my high-level metrics to quickly analyze the company to see if the company is doing well or not. And then if a company is not doing too well, that's when I dive deeper into the metrics to try to figure out what's actually going on with the company. Is it something that's happening industry-wise or is it something that's specifically happening to that company? And then the first thing that I look at, even before I look at any of the performance metrics, when it comes to a company that I want to invest in, I try to figure out what the company does. If I know what the company does, I'm able to explain it to somebody. That's already the first step because I don't like to invest in companies that I have no clue what their business model is or their business practices. If you can explain what a company does to a little kid, not only can you explain it to them, but it's also something that you can explain to yourself and something that you understand yourself. Because if you cannot explain what a company does to a little kid, not only will he or she not know, but you have no idea what you're investing in. Because when it comes to investing your money, you want to make sure that you're investing your hard-earned money in a company that you are able to trust and it's a reliable and stable company also. So for example, if I take a company like Chipotle, it's easy to explain to even a kid what Chipotle does because all you have to do is 
you drive up to a Chipotle, you bring your kid in, and you show them, okay, this is what Chipotle does. They sell tacos, burritos, burrito bowls, and even taco salads to customers. That's how the company makes money. If you take a company like Pepsi or Coca-Cola, that's an easy business model to explain also. Because Pepsi produces beverage drinks. They do more than beverage drinks, but they're known for their beverage drinks. And they sell it through different distribution channels. So you take your kid to a Walmart, to any local grocery store, and you can show them, okay, this is the Pepsi that we talked about. And this is one of the distribution channels that they sell their products through. And see how easy it is to explain these business models. One thing you can also do is open up a company's annual report and then go to the business section, which explains what the company does. The next thing that I look at is if the company has a sustainable long-term competitive advantage. Warren Buffett also calls this a moat. A company that has a competitive advantage over its competition has a product or service that they can sell and then also increase the price on, and they will not lose market share. So for example, let's say you want to go to a fast food place and you want a burger. You want a Big Mac. There's only one place that you can go to to get a Big Mac, which is McDonald's, of course. Or you want a Whopper. There's only one place that you can go to, which is going to be Burger King, if you want to get a Whopper. Another example, if you grew up using a specific product your whole life, more than likely you're going to favor using that product, even if your parents or your grandparents use that product. Think about a product such as Colgate or Clorox. If you grew up with these products, more than likely you will continue using these products because that's the competitive advantage that this product has. Some companies have what I call cash cows. These are products that a company produces and they never have to change the product over the years. So they can sell the exact same product for years and decades without even changing the product. They still have a loyal fan base. If you think about a product like Coca-Cola or Pepsi, the opposite of a competitive advantage is a product that's a commodity. So think about sugar or chicken or cement. Because there's no competitive advantage with these products, usually what companies try to do is lower the price and then get into a price war with the competition. Whenever a company has to lower its price just to stay competitive with the competition, that's not a good business model in order to grow your sales and your income. Meanwhile, a company that has a competitive advantage can increase the price on their products and their loyal customers will still go ahead and buy their products. Now, digging into the actual numbers, one thing that I always pay attention to is consistency. So I'm not going to look at the last year's performance. I want to see five to 10 years of performance and how the company is trending. So the first thing that I take a look at when I look at the numbers is the total revenue a company generates and the net income. What I'm looking for is a consistent uptrend with the revenue growing 3 to 5% each year. If you look at the graph of a company's total revenue, it's not going to be a straight line up. It's going to go up, it's going to go down. It might dip down a lot more, but the trend should be in an upwards trend. And then when I look at the net income, I'm also making sure that the net income is also increasing just like how the total revenue is increasing. If a company is able to increase its total revenue, but they're not able to increase its net income, that means that the management team is not doing a good job of managing the company and making sure that they're not overspending. If a company's revenue is not able to grow, but you do see a company's net income grow, that means that the company is trying everything to do to cut costs, which is also not a good thing. So like I said, total revenue needs to be an upward trend, and then also net income also needs to be an upward trend. And of course, a company is able to increase its revenue 
by selling more products or services, being able to expand into new markets, introducing new products to the customer base that they have, and then also when they raise the price of their products. That's why it's important for a company to have a competitive advantage. A quick way that I can tell how well management is performing in a company that I want to purchase is by looking at the profit margin. The profit margin is when you take the net income and you divide it by the total revenue. What I'm looking for, of course, is consistency over the years. I like to see my profit margins be in the double digits, so 10% or more year over year. If the profit margin grows higher than 10%, even better. The profit margin pretty much tells me how well management is performing on a day-to-day basis in order to keep the cost down, but still keep their sales and revenue high. The next metric that I look at is the return on equity metric. Now, the return on equity pretty much shows me how well a company is able to produce income based on its shareholders' equity. So in order to calculate the return on equity, let's look at an example. Let's say you have $20,000 to invest and you invest $10,000 in company A and $10,000 into company B. Now, after about a year, company A is able to generate $1,000 based on the $10,000 of equity that you put into the company. Company B is able to generate $3,000 based on the $10,000 that you invested in the company. The return on equity for company A is 10%. 1,000 divided by 10,000. Now, the return on equity for company B is 30%, 3,000 divided by 10,000. Now, both companies decide to pay out 50% of their net income as a dividend. So company A, take that 1,000, 50% of that 1,000 is 500, and then company B, 50% of the 3,000 is 1,500. The remaining earnings are put back into the company also called retained earnings. Now, just looking at this example, you can already see that the $10,000 that you invested in both companies, you're more than likely going to invest more money into company B because company B is able to generate more income based on your equity. Now, besides the return on equity, another metric that I look at also is the return on invested capital. Some companies manipulate the return on equity metrics. With the return on invested capital, You take the net income minus the dividends divided by the total capital. Now, the next metric that I look at is how much debt a company has. Because the way a company handles debt is going to be a little bit different than the way you and myself handle debt. Because companies usually use debt in order to expand their business practices. But when it comes to the debt metric, I like to use the debt to equity ratio. The debt-to-equity ratio shows me how much total liabilities a company has compared to the shareholders' equity. I like to see this number below 1, but every industry is going to be a little bit different. Another quick calculation that I like to do is I like to take the company's total liabilities and then divide it by the income that the company generates before taxes. Pretty much what I'm doing here is I'm trying to figure out how fast can a company pay off its total liabilities, its debt, with the income that it generates. What I'm looking for is five years or less. So if anything bad would happen with the economy, how fast could this company pay down its debt? Now, the next metric that I look at is if the company is buying back its shares. The reason why this is important is because if a company buys back its shares, it increases your ownership in the company, you don't have to pay taxes on it, and it also increases the earnings. Let's look at an example. Let's say a company only has 10 shares on the market and you own one of those shares. You own 10% of the company, one divided by 10. 
Let's say the company ended up deciding buying five of those shares and retiring them. Now there are only five shares left. You still own one share in the company, but now your 10% of ownership just increased to 20%. One divided by five, 20%. And here's the interesting thing, because even though your ownership went from 10 to 20%, you did not have to do anything for it. And also you didn't have to pay any taxes on your increase in ownership. However, if you sold your shares or even if you got dividends, then you will have to pay taxes. And then also the third benefit is that if a company buys back its shares, that also means that the earnings per share more than likely is going to increase. So for example, if a company generates a million in net income and has a million shares outstanding, the earnings per share is $1. 1 million in net income divided by 1 million shares outstanding is $1. But if the company decides to buy back 500,000 shares and there's only 500,000 left, now the earnings per share just increased to $2. Because now you have a million in net income divided by 500,000 shares is $2 in earnings per share. And any company that is able to increase its earnings per share more than likely is also going to see an increase in the price of the stock itself. Because a company that's able to increase its earnings is also a company that's worth more. So those are the main metrics that I look at. And these work well for growth stocks and dividend paying stocks. But when it comes to dividend paying stocks, there are some additional metrics that I look at. The first one is the dividend growth rate. What I'm looking for is a company that can increase its dividend year over year, but they need to be able to increase it faster than inflation. So if inflation on average is 3%, I like to see a company that's able to increase its dividend year over year by at least 4%. And there are many companies that can do this. One thing that I always do is I look at at least 10 years of dividend increases. And even better, if there was any economic downturn, I definitely pay attention to those years and what the company has done when it comes to their dividend payment. Because some companies end up decreasing their dividend payments or even stopping their dividend payments in an economic downturn. For example, companies like GE or even Disney. So that's why I'm always making sure that I'm looking at a longer period of 10 plus years to see if this company was able to pay an increasing dividend faster than inflation. The next dividend metric that I look at is the dividend yield. The dividend yield pretty much tells you how much dividend are you getting based on how much you paid for the stock. So you're taking the dividend divided by the stock price. Let's say a stock is priced at $10 on the stock market and the dividend that they pay out for the whole year is $1, then your dividend yield is 10%. Most people would want to see high dividend yields. But you always have to be careful because something that you might notice is that companies that have a high dividend yield usually have a lower dividend growth rate. And then some companies that have a low dividend yield usually have a high dividend growth rate. Which one should you choose? It depends. I like to do a little bit of both because with a company that has a high dividend yield, what that pretty much tells you is that upfront, you're going to get more dividend for what you pay to get the stock. But the growth might not be that fast. It might not even be faster than inflation. Also, you have to be careful with stocks that have a high dividend yield past 5% because it could mean that the price of the stock is down. Because think about it. If the price comes down, the dividend yield goes up. Usually, if the price of a stock comes down, that means that you need to do some additional investigation to see why the price of the stock is down. 
It could be something that happened with the company. It could be industry-wide. It could be an economic change. That's something that you need to further investigate. Another good thing is you can look at the dividend yield historically to decide if this is just a blip in the road or if this is a concern that you need to pay attention to. And then the last dividend metric that I look at is the payout ratio. The payout ratio pretty much tells you how much dividend is a company paying out of the earnings per share, also called the net income. So what I'm usually looking for is a payout ratio of 40% or less. Every industry is going to be a little bit different. So for example, if a company has a 50% payout ratio, so they generated $2 in earnings per share, they would pay out a dollar in dividend income. There is a problem with companies that have a consistently high payout ratio because keep in mind, the dividend comes out of the net income. So if a company's payout ratio is too high and there might be an economic downturn and their net income takes a dip, more than likely, the dividend is also going to get cut or even canceled. Some companies also end up deciding to pay a dividend with their debt just to keep their shareholders happy and keep the dividend going. That's not a situation that I like to see for a company. Now, why do I go through the hassle of analyzing companies, making sure that they hit their report card metrics, and then adding them to a watch list? The reason why I do it is because it's fun to me. I like to create my passive income using various methods. And one of those methods is to make dividend income. It's something that I like to do by analyzing these companies, of course, and then once I buy these companies, I just have to hold on to them and then reap the benefits of all my work by looking at the dividend income that I get. Let's talk about my dividend portfolio. Now, this portfolio is something that I've set up a few years ago. And even though it's a dividend portfolio, so it only contains dividend paying stocks, I'm also going to add some growth stocks to it in the future. Now, the reason why I set this up was because I wanted to try something new back in the day. And when I learned about dividend paying stocks, it sparked my interest. So I created a separate account because I have the 401k, I have the Roth IRAs, etc, etc. But with my brokerage account that I'm using, currently Ally, I set up my dividend portfolio. And now it's a portfolio that manages itself. So I'm getting passive income through dividend payments, and those dividend payments automatically get reinvested. So my dividend income is like a snowball effect. Also, dividend investing to me is fun. It allows me to push my knowledge when it comes to analyzing companies using fundamental analysis, of course, and then buying them when they're selling at a discount. Also, dividend investing gives me confidence when it comes to investing because I'm in the driver's seat and I'm making the decisions. It's not like when you invest in an index fund, an ETF, or a mutual fund where you have a fund manager that's making all the decisions. Also, if you know how to analyze companies and you know how to invest in the stock market, you're less likely to get taken advantage of because you will come across people that tell you to buy specific stocks. So you might hear friends tell you to buy specific stocks or even family members. Or you might even go to a financial planner and he's going to tell you what you need to invest in. But if you have the knowledge already because you've been investing yourself, you'll be able to pick up people that are trying to bamboozle you a lot faster. And then, of course, the last thing also, besides the passive income that I generate that keeps growing with my dividend portfolio, I can also take my investment portfolio and then pass it down to, let's say, if I had kids or even passing it down to family members. And then once they get it, they don't have to start from point zero because they already have an investment account that's spitting out passive income for them on a frequent basis. So just looking at my dividend portfolio, 
that I currently have at ally.com. You can see that they have about 22 dividend paying stocks, actually 21 dividend paying stocks. And then I also have a BND, which is the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF. Now, with the other stocks that I have in my portfolio, I'm getting dividend payments, of course. But then with my BND ETF, I'm getting interest payments. And I get these also on a monthly basis. The 21 stocks that I have are in various sectors of the stock market. Now, if I look at my dividend payments for the year, so if I do year to date and I just look at my dividend income, you can see that I've been getting dividend checks on a frequent basis. When I did the calculation, I've received about 95 dividend. You hear a lot about supply chains these days because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. so far and if i look at it from a year standpoint i will receive over 100 dividend checks which comes down to around 8.3 dividend payments per month when i looked at my previous month i've generated a little over 220 dollars in dividend income and my dividend income gets reinvested into buying more dividend paying stocks so every single month my dividend income grows so next month it's going to be more than $220 in dividend income. So when it comes to the dividend payments that I do get, currently I'm enrolled in a DRIP at Ally, a DRIP standing for a dividend reinvestment plan. This pretty much means that whenever I'm getting a dividend payment from a specific company, let's say Coca-Cola, that dividend automatically gets reinvested into buying more shares of Coca-Cola. Now, this is a great thing because you're not only getting dividend payments, but you're automatically buying more dividend paying stocks with your dividend. So it allows you to grow your dividend income. But one thing that you have to pay attention to is that even though drip is a good way to start when it comes to reinvesting your dividends, you still want to make sure that you're buying companies when they're selling at a discount. So you don't want to buy a company when it's overpriced. In that case, it would be better to not be enrolled into DRIP and just receive the dividend into your account. Do your fundamental analysis, having those companies that you want to buy on a watch list and then only buy them when they're selling at a discount. But if you're just starting out when it comes to investing in dividend paying stocks, just go the DRIP route. Don't worry about making sure that you collect all that dividend income and then keep investing it in companies that are selling at a discount. Because in the beginning, your dividend income is going to be small. It might only be a few dollars. So don't worry about buying those companies that are selling at a discount with just a few dollars. Also, not all brokerage firms allow drip. So always double check the investment firm that you're investing with if they allow drip investing. So when is it the best time to buy? Because I've already said you only want to buy as a value investor that's investing for dividend paying stocks. You only want to buy when the company is selling at a discount. So the first question is, how can you tell if a company is selling at a discount? If a stock is trading for a dollar, 
does that mean that the stock is cheap? On the other hand, if a stock is trading for $1,000, does that mean that the stock is expensive? It's going to be hard to tell if you don't know what the underlying value is of that particular stock. Not because a stock is trading for a dollar doesn't mean that it's cheap. You still need to know the underlying value, of course. Think about it like this. Let's say you have a dollar in your pocket and a friend comes up to you and he wants to sell you a piece of bubble gum, just one piece, and he tells you, you know what, I'll sell it to you for a dollar. Now you're going to look at him crazy because a piece of bubble gum is worth less than a dollar. So you could get a piece of bubble gum for, let's say, 10 cents. So a dollar, it's way too overpriced. On the flip side, let's say you have $10,000 to spend and you want to buy a new car. And then all of a sudden you see that they are selling new Tesla cars for $10,000. That's a steal of the century because Tesla cars are worth more than $10,000 on the market. So you're actually getting the Tesla car at a discount. That's the way you need to look at investing in dividend paying stocks. You need to know what the value is of the stock before you actually go and add it to your watch list and then purchase it also. There are different ways that you can tell how much a company that's trading on the stock market is worth. Some investors like to look at, for example, the book value of a company. Other investors like to look at the earnings of a company and then they look at the P.E. ratio which is something that I've talked about in the past. The P.E. ratio is a great way of trying to figure out what the company is worth that is trading on the stock market because you're looking at the net income that a company generates, also called the earnings. If a company can increase its earnings, it also means that a company is going to be worth more. Let's say your friend has a company that generates $10,000 in net income every single year. He wants to sell it to you. So this business, let's say it's an e-commerce business, runs on autopilot, 10K a year flat. If he wants to sell it to you, and how much are you willing to pay for it? Let's say he wants to sell it for you for $1,000. You're spending on buying a company for $1,000 that generates $10,000 per year. So you'll pretty much have your invested capital back within two months. And anything after that is gonna be pure profit. Now, let's say that same friend came up to you and he told you, you know what? I have an e-commerce business, it's not doing too well, Every single month, I need to spend 5K in advertising just to get a few sales. So I spent 5K, but I'm not making any type of money. And I want to sell this business to you for $1,000. You're going to look at him strange and tell him that, no, I'm not going to buy a business that's not even generating any income. So that's why the earnings of a company is extremely important, how much net income a company can generate. And a great company can generate a net income that they can keep increasing year over year. On the stock market, we look at the P.E. ratio, the price divided by the earnings ratio. This ratio tells you the multiple of how much you're willing to pay for the earnings of a company. So a P.E. ratio of, let's say, 15, that means that you're willing to pay 15 times the earnings of a company. In essence, that means that you will get your original capital back within 15 years, if you look at it from the earnings standpoint. Now, I like to look at companies that have a P.E. ratio of 20 or less, 15 or less is even better. So that's how I decide when a company is trading at a discount or when a company is overvalued. Now, when do I sell a dividend-paying company? I sell a dividend-paying company if that company changes or updates its business model into a space that they're not familiar with. For example, if a company produces chocolate chip cookies and then all of a sudden they want to expand the business and they want to jump into the technology sector, that's a big red flag because this company is used to generating their income from 
selling chocolate chip cookies, but now they're jumping into a whole new industry. From a financial standpoint, you can already tell that there's going to be a lot of ups and downs, which might affect the dividend that they pay. Another reason why I also sell my dividend paying stocks is when the company cuts the dividend. So anytime something might happen economically, or even if the company is going through some turmoil and it affects their net income, they might slash their dividend that they pay to their shareholders. And then the last reason why I sell my dividend paying stocks is if a company stops paying a dividend. So there are companies that have been paying a increasing dividend year over year, but then all of a sudden there might be an economic crash, an economic downturn, and they just stop paying a dividend. That's a big no-no because companies pride themselves on paying out dividends to their shareholders. And especially if it's a blue chip company, those companies want to keep their shareholders. And a big way to keep their shareholders is by paying out a frequent dividend. Now, if a company pays out a dividend, but they might not increase their dividend as fast or even faster than inflation, I still hold on to that dividend. So for example, I bought stock in Walmart. And ever since I bought stock in Walmart, they've been pretty much lagging with their dividend growth. But the dividend that I do get, I just take that dividend income and invest it in another dividend paying company. So how do I check on dividend stocks? Because on average, in the US, if you buy a dividend paying company, you get a quarterly dividend payment. So every quarter, that company that you bought is going to pay out a dividend. Some companies might only pay twice a year, others pay monthly, but on average, quarterly. Let's say you have a big list of companies in your portfolio, 30, 40, 50. It's going to be harder to manage and trying to figure out, okay, I'm getting my dividend payments. Are they increasing? Are they staying the same? Are they decreasing? Or did one of the companies actually stop paying a dividend? The way that I do it is I export all my dividend income in, let's say, an Excel spreadsheet. And then I sort it by month and by company, which allows me to see if the dividend payments that I've been getting for a specific company are actually increasing or not. Now, if they are not, like I said, I hold on to them. If they end up getting cut, I sell the company. And then if they stop paying a dividend, I sell that company also. For example, in the past, I had shares in Disney, but then the Disney company stopped paying a dividend. And I saw that by exporting all the dividend income in my Excel spreadsheet and then sorting it and filtering it the correct way. And I noticed that Disney was not paying a dividend anymore. So I ended up selling them. So how many dividend paying companies should you have in your dividend portfolio? The more you have, the harder it is going to be to manage them because it's not only about looking at the dividend paying stocks that you have in your portfolio. You still need to stay up to date with them at least once a year because every single year companies put out their annual report. So you do want to go through the annual report and make sure that those companies are still dividend paying companies that you want to have in your dividend portfolio. I recommend having between 20 to 30 dividend paying companies in your portfolio, anything over 30, and it might get a little bit harder to manage. But 30 is still a good number, 20 to 30, because it allows for diversification. You don't want all your eggs in one basket when it comes to investing. And when it comes to dividend investing, you don't want all your eggs in one industry basket. The best dividend paying company that you need to buy. As a value investor, I'm always careful with recommending a specific stock or company that you need to buy shares in. Because if you think about it, a company might perform well today, but that doesn't mean that the company will perform well in the future. However, with the stock that I'm going to talk about today, this is a monthly dividend paying stock. They even have a cool goal. 
their goal is to deliver dependable monthly dividends that increase over time. That's exactly what I want as a value investor from a dividend paying company. I would add one more thing to their goal. They need to be able to deliver monthly dividends that increase over time, but that increase needs to be faster than inflation. Luckily for you and me, this company is able to increase their dividends faster than inflation year over year, or they're able to keep up and keep pace with inflation. So I'm going to go ahead and reveal the company, and then we'll go into the specifics. The company that I'm talking about is Realty Income. This company can also be found on the stock market under the ticker symbol O. Realty Income is a company that buys commercial properties and then leases it to big name tenants. Tenants such as Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, Taco Bell. Realty Income is a REIT, also standing for Real Estate Investment Trust. Realty Income operates in the US primarily, but they also operate overseas in Europe, in Spain, and the UK. Realty Income was founded by William and Joan Clark back in 1969. And then the company went public in 1994. Now, the interesting thing about Realty Income is their business model. Because from the start, Joan and William wanted to create a business that provided stable and dependable income for their shareholders. And they've been able to achieve this because Realty Income has been on the stock market since 1994. And then even if you look at these tenants that they lease to, these are highly dependable tenants because even in an economic downturn, tenants such as the dollar stores, even the Walmarts, they're still able to pay their lease. And Realty Income makes sure to create lease contracts for at least 10 years, sometimes more, sometimes less, but 10 years is what they shoot for. And even if you're overseas and you go to a grocery store like Carrefour, more than likely Realty Income owns the property and is leasing it to Carrefour. And that's what I like so much about Realty Income because the dependable monthly dividends directly come from the dependable tenants. If you think about a grocery store, you still have to go and get your essentials, even in an economic downturn. You still have to go to the grocery store and get your groceries. So some of these grocery stores have a lease contract with Realty Income. That's where your monthly dividends are coming from. And a big benefit of Realty Income is passive income. So the monthly dividend that they pay out, you can start using that as passive income. Most companies in the U.S. pay a quarterly dividend. But with Realty Income being a monthly dividend paying company, you can start using that as your passive income. There are friends that I talk to and particularly one friend that works in the IT field. He wants to get into making more passive income. So he's making earned income in the IT field and he's making a good salary. He wants to transition slowly into making some passive income also. And we've looked at and talked about different ways of making passive income with book publishing, creating his own YouTube channel, etc., etc. But I keep telling him that investing in dividend-paying companies, that's the easiest way to start building your passive income. And with Realty Income paying a monthly dividend, that's a great way to start your passive income journey. And then even if you look at the dividend payments from Realty Income, they've been able to increase their dividends 114 times. They've been paying a dividend since 1994. And when I checked, I haven't seen a dividend decrease since 1999. So that's over 20 years of dividend payments. Consistency, dependability, that's the type of company that I like because you invest in the company once and you reap the benefits. And of course, it allows you to sleep well at night because even if overall the stock market isn't performing well, you can still hold on to your realty income shares 
and still get that dividend. Because most companies in the US pay a quarterly dividend. So every three months, you see a dividend payment being deposited in your account. And then if you look at companies overseas, it's not that consistent depending on the company when they pay out a dividend. Also, they might not even grow their dividends faster than inflation. That's why with the monthly dividend paying company, you're in good hands. And then also for my portfolio, I use realty income as my foundation because I'm getting that monthly passive income. And then any additional dividend stocks that I buy are sitting on top of my foundation as an addition. So what it will look like is that whenever realty income increases their dividends, it increases my overall foundation and then the other dividend payments sit on top. If you look at your dividend payments month by month, you see it's up and down because different companies pay their dividends at different times. But with Realty Income being the stable monthly dividend paying company, that's why I use them as my foundation. And I've been invested in Realty Income for a couple of years now. So I've been getting my monthly dividends for a few years now on time every single month around the middle of the month. And I've been adding and buying some additional shares. And then when I get my dividend, I either reinvest it into buying more shares in Realty Income or I take that dividend and I invest in other dividend paying companies, which is why I said that Realty Income is a good company to look at when it comes to investing for dividends, because the dividends that you do make and the dividends that you do get on a monthly basis from Realty Income, you can just take those dividends and reinvest it in different companies. So you'll be able to slowly get rich and slowly build your wealth. Another thing that I like about Realty Income is their corporate responsibility. Now, with any company that I invest in, as a value investor, I like to look at a company that generates a healthy amount of net income that they can grow year over year. Because if they can do that, more than likely, they're also going to be able to increase the dividends that they pay out to shareholders year over year. I also like to look at a company's business model and like to see what type of business this company is engaged in. Because there might be some business models that you don't agree with. There might be specific companies that you don't like to invest in or specific industries. So for example, let's say you're against CBD or you're against for-profit prison systems or you're against companies that produce weapons. Luckily for us, Realty Income has a safe and stable business model. And then also the Realty Income Management Team has been doing a great job of managing the business, but then also growing the company by expanding overseas, like I mentioned, in Spain and then even in the UK. I'm pretty sure that they're also looking at other countries to expand into because currently they have close to 12,000 commercial properties that they own. Since they've been in the business since 1969, they've been able to develop a plan and a system that's pretty much just plug and play. So they know what to look for. They know how to analyze specific properties, specific locations, And all they have to do is plug their system in a specific location. And we're going to benefit from it because we're going to receive that dividend. If you're looking to buy shares in Realty Income or any other dividend paying company, make sure that you're buying them when it makes financial sense. You don't want to buy a stock when it's too expensive. One trick that I use is the P-E ratio, the price divided by the earnings ratio, in order to tell if a stock is selling at a discount or selling too expensive. Usually what I'm looking for is a stock with a P.E. ratio below 15. However, with a real estate investment trust, a REIT, such as Realty Income, you cannot use the P.E. ratio. What you need to do is you need to take the E, which is the earnings, and substitute that with the FFO, 
the funds from operations. The funds from operations measures the performance of your real estate investment trust. What you need to do is you take the P divided by the AFFO, which is the adjusted funds from operations. And that's going to tell you if your company is selling at a discount or not. So I'm looking at the AFFO from the annual report that Realty Income gave. And in 2021, it was at $359. Currently, the stock is trading at around $64. Now, $64 divided by $359 is 17.8. So I like to see that below $15, but $17 to $18, that's a good ratio also. And Realty Income has been the game changer in my dividend portfolio. It provides stability. It's consistent. Even in an economic downturn, I'm still getting my dividend payments. Meanwhile, other companies cut or even stop paying a dividend. And then also is the one that I use to start making passive income. The one that I can reliably tell my friends to start investing in. That's why Realty Income is the number one dividend paying stock that you need to have in your investment portfolio. Now, if you've already invested in index funds, mutual funds, and ETFs, which gives you that immediate diversification, but you still want to invest in individual companies, then Realty Income is the first one that you need to pay attention to, have on your watch list, and start investing in. Investing in your 20s versus investing in your 50s. Why would you even think about investing when you're young? Because you still have your whole life ahead of you. You're not thinking about investing. You're not thinking about retirement. You just want to live your life and have fun. You might want to buy the latest video games or even the newest sneakers. And you might also be scared to start investing because you don't know where to start. The investing world is big and confusing and you might need some help. However, when you start thinking about retirement, the younger you are when it comes to planning your retirement, the easier it's going to be to actually hit your retirement goal. For example, when I was in my early 20s, I worked at a retail store. And this is one of my first jobs that I had. So the company that I worked at had a 401k representative come through in order to talk about retirement and have employees ask questions about their 401k, their retirement, and any other miscellaneous questions they might have. Now, I went into that meeting and I looked around and I noticed that I was the only young person in that whole meeting. So I was in my early 20s and everybody else was in their mid to late 50s and up. Which surprised me because even at a young age, I was already thinking about, okay, what do I need to do in order to be able to put myself in a position where I'm already financially free and I would be able to retire early and just live the life that I want to live. That was my whole mindset. But all the young people that I worked with did not have that mindset. They were focused on buying the latest materialistic things such as headphones, new iPhones, and the list goes on. So if you're already thinking about retirement at a young age, you're way ahead of your peers. Now, the people that were in their 50s in the meeting, they felt defeated because they felt that it was too late for them to start investing for retirement. But even at that age, you can still catch up. It's going to take more effort, but you can still work on your retirement. Everyone's investing journey is going to be different. But on average, if you're younger, when you start to invest, you'll be able to take more risk. You'll be able to invest in equities or even securities, such as stocks that have historically been able to provide a better rate of return than, for example, fixed income assets like bonds. When you're young, you can invest 80 maybe even 90% in stocks. But the older you get, and when you start hitting your 50s, you want to make that pivot and that switch 
and start to invest in more fixed income assets such as bonds, annuities, maybe even dividend paying stocks. A good method to use in order to figure out how much of your investment portfolio needs to be in a fixed income asset is to use the John Bogle method. That's an easy method to use. All you need to do is take your age, which will represent the percentage of what you need to have in fixed income assets. So if you're 25, you only need to have 25% in fixed income assets, and then 75% can be in high risk, high reward stocks. Of course, you can play around with this number. Maybe you want to have less than 25% in a fixed income asset. You might only want to have 20%. That's perfectly fine. But just use the John Bogle method to figure out on average how much you need to have invested percentage-wise in fixed income assets. And even when you're older, above 50 or 60, you still need to have a portion of your investment portfolio in stocks because you still want that rate of return that stocks can give you compared to fixed income assets. The biggest benefit that you have when you start investing at a young age is that you have a long timeline in order to build and grow your wealth. Because if you start investing at a young age, your capital, your money can compound for you. So the money that you invest, even if you start out by investing a small amount of money on a frequent basis, that money is able to compound. When it comes to your capital compounding in the stock market, there's three ways this happens. It happens with capital gains, interest, and dividends. With capital gains, any money that you've invested in the stock market has the potential to gain in value, which is also called a unrealized capital gain. Now, the second one, interest. So if you invest in a fixed income asset, such as a bond, you'll get interest payments on a frequent basis. And then the last one, dividend payments. So dividends that you do get from dividend paying companies, those are going to be reinvested in order to buy more shares of stock. So those three methods of compounding your money in the stock market, that's what's going to make it able for you to invest a little bit of money and your money just compounds and allows you to build wealth. For example, let's say you graduated from college and you started working and you already invested, let's say, $2,000 in a 401k. And the company that you work at also gives you an employer match. You have $2,000 invested at the age of 24. And then every single month you invest $1,000, which is doable with an employer match. When you hit the age of 50, you'll be a millionaire if you can get a rate of return of around 8%. Now, if you're at the age of 40 and you still want to be a millionaire by age 50, if you take the same metrics by looking at a rate of return of 8% and you have $2,000 invested in your 401k, you will have to invest close to $5,500 a month just to be a millionaire by age 50. Starting at 24 allows you to invest less because like I said, your money compounds. But if you start investing at a later age, you're going to have to catch up. Of course, in your situation, you might not start to invest at the age of 24. And you might not even have close to $1,000 to invest every single month. Everybody's situation is going to be different. But one thing that is important is that you have a investing goal. Because when you start investing, you don't just want to invest just for the sake of investing. You do need to have a goal. Are you investing for retirement? Are you investing for a house? Are you investing just so you can buy a new car? Depending on what your goal is, that's also going to determine where you need to park your money. Investing in the stock market is a long-term investment, so 10 plus years. That's how you need to look at it. 
But let's say you just want to save up some money for a car or even for a down payment on a house. There are other vehicles out there that you can use. For example, it might just be better to park your money that you are saving to buy a car. It might be better to put that in a savings account or a money market account or a certificate of deposit. But when it comes to investing, try to stay away from the mindset of thinking that it should happen fast because investing is a slow process. Yes, you will hear stories of people becoming millionaires at an early age by just investing, but more than likely they started at a young age and they were consistent with investing a big portion of their salary. It is doable to become a 401k millionaire. You just have to run the numbers in order to figure out how much you need to invest in order to become a 401k millionaire. The stock market is not predictable, of course, but you can look at historical data and, for example, look at the rate of return over the years to figure out and plot how much you need to invest and how long it will take for you to become a millionaire when it comes to investing in the stock market. Another thing that's interesting about investing when you're young or even old is your free time and your investing knowledge. If you're younger, more than likely you don't have the knowledge when it comes to investing in different types of securities. This knowledge comes with time, of course. Time, experience, making mistakes. It's all gonna happen. It's something that you need to take in stride and something that you need to learn from. Look at your failures, not as mistakes, but as a learning process. If you're younger, you might have some free time to try, for example, day trading or even options trading. But when you're older, you might not want to participate in high risks, high reward ways of trying to make money in the stock market. And especially when you're older and you're close to retirement age or you're already retired, you don't want to stress over your capital or your money and the value of it going up and down. You want a steady stream of income that you can rely on. So fixed income assets, like I said, will play a major role. Even if you can do anything outside of the stock market, for example, if you have a rental property through real estate, or even if you have a business that provides you a stable, consistent income every month, that's what you need to be building towards in your younger years. And when I think of the future when it comes to investing, definitely investing in the stock market is still going to be the best option. But in the world that we live in now, especially with crypto, I can also see crypto playing a major role in the future in how people will construct their portfolio. So currently you might have some stocks, some bonds, you might even have some commodities. But going into the future, I can definitely also see people and even companies adding more currencies like crypto investments into investment portfolios. Now, of course, anything that you do when it comes to investing, there's risk involved, especially in the crypto market. So definitely crypto will be something that you need to pay even more attention to as it's a lot more volatile than even some of the stocks that you can purchase in the stock market. Now, if you're a lazy investor, if you're more of a set it and forget it type of investor, you don't want to log in and constantly pay attention to how your stocks are performing or how your index fund ETF or mutual funds are performing. If you work at a company that also offers a 401k, more than likely you can invest in a target date fund. A target date fund is a retirement fund that automatically rebalances itself the closer it gets to the retirement age. So every target date fund has a retirement age. So if it's XYZ target date fund, 2065 that means that 2065 would be your retirement age so when you start investing in this fund now it's going to be a lot more aggressive 
with investing in high-risk stocks, for example. But this portfolio is automatically rebalanced every single year. And then, of course, the closer it gets to 2065, it's going to go from a more aggressive portfolio to a more conservative portfolio. Now, some target date funds, once they hit that retirement age, they either stop rebalancing, but there are some target date funds that still rebalance after that retirement age. Make sure to double check the target date fund that you're investing in, if it's one that does rebalance after the retirement age, or if it doesn't. And of course, for this privilege of laziness, because you just invest in it and you don't have to touch it because everything is being done for you, for this privilege, you can expect a higher expense ratio because there is a fund manager that actively rebalances the target date fund, which you will be paying for. Also, if you want to invest in a target date fund, make sure that that's 100% of your investment portfolio. Because if you're going to be introducing other securities besides that target date fund, you're going to mess with your asset allocation. Your asset allocation pretty much telling you how much money or the percentage of money is allocated to a specific investment. Whether it might be stocks, bonds, crypto, commodities, art. So how soon should you start investing? Of course, there's no right or wrong age when it comes to investing, but the sooner the better. Because like I mentioned earlier, if you start investing at a young age, you have all that time ahead of you for your money to compound and build your wealth. Also, you don't want to put off investing because before you know it, months will go by, years, even potentially decades. And you'll be wondering where did all that time go? Especially if you start making money and you don't invest, you look back throughout the years and you're going to try to figure out, wait a minute, I've made all this money. What did I actually spend it on? When you start investing at a young age, a good way to look at it is that you will be able to make time work in your favor. Because the older we get, the faster time seems to be going. But if you start investing at a young age, you can actually have that time work in your favor. Now, on the flip side of that coin, you might be saying to yourself, I'm way too old to start investing. So same thing like I said with thinking that you're too young to start investing, you're never too old to start investing. Because if there's a company that you work at, and that company offers a 401k, and you also have access to an IRA, you have a higher contribution limit if you're above the age of 50, also called the catch-up contribution limit. This allows you to invest even more than the current limit just to catch up and allow you to grow your investments potentially at a faster rate. Now, let's say that you're very young. You're under the age of 15, but you still want to invest. What you need is a custodial account set up for you. A custodial account can be set up by your parent or a adult supervisor. They're able to open up a custodial account with any of the big name investment firms that we know of, such as Ally, TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, etc. Once you have that custodial account set up, always invest with your parent or your legal guardian. Because especially when you're at a young age, you do want adult supervision when it comes to investing. If you're an older investor or an investor that's already retired, you might be invested in dividend paying stocks. But if you're a young investor, should you invest in dividend paying stocks? Because dividend paying stocks don't grow as fast as let's say a growth stock, which has a higher rate of return. Even for a younger investor, of course, invest in dividend paying stocks because if you're young and you're just starting out investing, 
it's not always about seeing how much money you can make. It's also a learning process. And you want to know the ins and outs of some of the securities that are available to you. And of course, what you want to do is not put all your eggs in one basket. So don't put all your investment money in dividend paying stocks in this case. But make sure that you do have a few dividend paying stocks or even a dividend index fund or dividend ETF in your portfolio. And if you happen to find out that you do like dividend investing, then you can always take it to the next level and start doing some fundamental analysis in order to analyze dividend paying companies like a value investor would do it. So the mindset that I want you to keep in mind is to start investing at a young age, if possible, and then invest any amount that you can, even if it's a couple of dollars here or there, because your money will compound. And then the closer you get to your retirement age and the older you get, that's when you can switch from being more high risk, investing in high risk stocks, to becoming more conservative by investing in fixed income assets. And then once you hit that retirement age, you can dibble and dabble a little bit. Maybe you still want to invest in high risk stocks, or maybe you just want to stay conservative and be focused on fixed income assets only. Let's talk about the five tips on how to get rich by investing in the stock market. Because let's face it, who doesn't want to get rich by investing in the stock market? Also, you have all these different avenues that you can make money in, such as real estate or even crypto. But the stock market is still one of the best options and one of the easiest options to start to build your wealth. So the first thing you have to think about, the first tip is setting a goal. Because it's extremely easy to just start investing without having a goal because that's how I started investing. I just started spending money, buying different shares, buying different stocks, and I had no specific goal. I just jumped in because I wanted to learn how the stock market worked. But after purchasing a few shares of stock, I quickly noticed that I actually need to have a specific goal when I'm investing in the stock market. Even if I look at my dividend portfolio, I had a specific goal for my dividend portfolio. My goal was to be able to generate at least $2,000 to $3,000 in dividend income per year. That's the foundation. And anything on top of that is going to build on top of that foundation. Every single year, my dividend income grows. I get dividend payments. And then also the dividend payments that the companies do pay out, they grow those faster than inflation. So I have that snowball effect working for me where I'm getting the dividend, but then I'm also able to increase my income. If you think about a goal, a goal is nothing more than a path to success. Let's say you get out of the house and you take a taxi. Your taxi cab is going to want to know where is he or she supposed to bring you. If you say, okay, I want to go downtown. Now your taxi driver has a goal. They have a specific location that they need to go to. After you've set up your goal, now you need to know the steps that you need to take in order to achieve that goal. So let's say you have a goal of having a million dollar or even two million dollar investment account. That's your particular goal. And now let's say you want to hit that goal by age 40. The next step is to plan out your goal. So you can plan out the years that you still have in order to achieve your million to $2 million investment account. And you can also figure out what your rate of return needs to be on average every single year in order to hit your goal. And then you can also figure out how much you need to invest on a frequent basis using dollar cost averaging in order to hit that specific goal. So setting a goal is of the utmost importance. Tip number two on how to get rich by making money in the stock market is that you need to start investing in securities that can help you grow your wealth fast. Now, investing in the stock market has a lot of risk associated with it. So how stocks performed in the past 
might not be an excellent indicator of how those stocks will perform in the future. But that's something that we do look at. We can look at how stocks, ETFs, index funds, or even mutual funds have performed in the past. And based on that performance, try to predict how it will perform in the future. If you want to grow your wealth fast in the stock market, a good place to start is by investing in ETFs. The reason why you want to invest in ETFs is because ETFs are a passive way of investing. So you don't have to do all the fundamental analysis to make sure that you're investing in the right stocks or even the right fixed income assets. With an ETF, you get immediate diversification depending on the ETF that you purchase. One of the good ETFs that you can take a look at is the VOO, which is the Vanguard S&P 500 Index Fund ETF. With this ETF, you're automatically diversified in the 500 biggest companies in the U.S. And then if you apply dollar cost averaging, you're constantly buying more shares in that specific ETF. Just focusing on buying shares in this ETF, for example, of course you have other ETFs that also perform well, but particularly looking at the VOO, you can worry about making more money that you can invest in that ETF. So you don't have to worry about analyzing the individual stocks. All you have to do in the outside world is focusing on making more money that you can then invest in different ETFs that are able to grow your wealth fast and make you rich. And of course, tip number three, make sure that you're investing in tax efficient accounts. Nothing is worse than investing your hard earned money, seeing it grow and then having to pay a boatload of taxes on your wealth. That's why you have to pay attention to which accounts you actually open and invest with. Any traditional brokerage account, you can expect to pay taxes depending on how you trade and buy and sell shares. If for example, you look at a 401k or even a Roth 401k, with a traditional 401k, you invest with pre-tax money. So you invest your money before taxes are taken out and your money is able to grow. But then at that point when you hit retirement age, and you take some income out of your investments, that's when you're going to get taxed. On the other side of the coin, if you look at a Roth IRA, you're actually investing with after-tax dollars. So your taxes are already paid, and then the money that's left, that's the money that you invest in the stock market. This money, however, grows tax-free. But the thing that you have to think about, with a traditional 401k, your money is going to be able to grow faster, and then when tax time comes, you're more than likely in a lower tax bracket. But then with the Roth IRA, you're already taking a chunk of your taxes out of it and then investing with the remainder of your income and then it grows tax-free. But everybody's situation is different. So you have to figure out which situation would work for you better. Do you want to have a traditional 401k or even a traditional IRA? Have it grow and then have the taxes taken out when you hit that retirement age? On the flip side, with the Roth, you're investing with after-tax dollars and during retirement age, if you still see yourself potentially being at a higher tax bracket, that might be a better option for you. So it's all about weighing the options, but definitely pay attention to tax-efficient investment accounts. And tip number four is having the right mindset when it comes to investing. And the right mindset when it comes to investing is all about consistency. Everybody nowadays has shiny object syndrome, which pretty much means People are scatterbrained. One day they want to invest in the stock market. Then the next day they hear about crypto. So they want to jump on the crypto bandwagon. Then they switch over and then they want to do real estate. Then they want to start a new YouTube channel 
or they switch it up again and they want to start a small business. When it comes to the right mindset, you just want to focus on investing consistently, making sure that you have that goal, tip one, and then executing till you hit your goal. Having the right mindset when it comes to investing, it's not something fun. It's not something sexy. It's actually pretty boring, but boring and consistency will lead to you becoming rich and building your wealth. And tip number five on getting rich from investing in the stock market is a little bit outside of the box thinking, but you need to start investing for your kids, for your little ones, any family members that are growing up now. Because think about it. How awesome would it be if your parents or even your grandparents already had a investment account for you set up? And then when you're of age, you take ownership of that account and you just continue the investing process. That would put you ahead of all of your peers. Even when I look at my little niece and my little cousin, I went ahead and I bought them their first share of stock, both in Coca-Cola and Disney, which will already start the process of them thinking about investing. So yes, I'm investing for them right now. And then when they're old enough, when they are an adult, they'll be able to take ownership of their investments. And of course, like I said, this is also a great way of getting kids involved in the stock market because the school is not going to teach them how to invest. More than likely, their friends are not going to tell them the best way to start investing. It needs to come from somebody just like yourself who is actually interested in investing and is currently actually working on buying investments, buying ETFs, mutual funds, index funds, and working on building your wealth. The knowledge that you do gain along the way, that's the knowledge that you can pass down. And even if you do not want to go the route of buying individual shares of stock, you can always open a custodial account and be the legal guardian and the adult supervisor of that custodial account, which you will be able to use to invest for your kids or for any family members. And then they'll be able to take it over once they come of age. Now, if you enjoy my content on stock market investing, then be sure to follow my podcast and check out my show notes below for exclusive premium content that will take your investing to the next level. In the show notes, I also link to my books, my Instagram so you can follow me, and my YouTube channel. I'll catch you in the next episode.